Heavenly Father, just want to thank you for who you are and for the work of your hands. Thankful for sending your only begotten Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. We're thankful for his miraculous virgin birth, his perfect life, and most of all, his sacrificial death on the cross for our sins. Thankful for the power of his resurrection and for his ascension and the promise of his second coming. This morning, Lord God, we're so thankful for the forgiveness of the Lord Jesus Christ. Help us, Lord God, to learn from his perfect example that we would forgive as he has forgiven us. Thankful, Lord God, for this church, for, the, um, for Pastor Joel and his wife Jill, uh, for all the elders, for all the deacons, and for all the saints. We're thankful, Lord God, for the great and mighty work that you have began in this church, that you continue to do, um, and what you will do in the future, Father God. We just pray for them and pray for Joel now, Lord God, as he proclaims your word to the saints at Trinity. Be honoured and glorified and bless each precious soul here this morning. In the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Uh, On the cross, Jesus, um, or it is recorded for us, uh, that Jesus said seven sayings. And these sayings have come to be known as the, or commonly known as the seven sayings of Jesus on the cross. This morning, I just want to focus on the first of these seven sayings. And the first of these seven sayings is recorded for us in Luke chapter 23 in verse 34, where Jesus says, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they are doing. So the first saying of Jesus is actually a prayer of the man Christ Jesus addressed to his heavenly Father. And this morning I want us to look at this prayer that Jesus addresses to his heavenly Father, and I want us to look at four things. And the four things that I want to look at is what Jesus prays for, who Jesus prays for, how Jesus, third thing, how Jesus' prayer is answered, and then fourthly, how Jesus' prayer is exemplified. So let's look at firstly what Jesus prays for. Look with me uh, there in verse, uh, in our main verse, in verse 34. We see there that the incarnate Christ Jesus, and just so I define my terms, when we uh, use the big word incarnation, we're talking about um, the eternal Son of God who was eternally or is eternally God of very God. The incarnation is when the Son of God became a man. So on the cross, this is the incarnate Christ, God-man, there uh, being nailed to the cross. So we see there the incarnate Christ, the man Christ Jesus, prays to his Father. And his prayer is that, Father, forgive them. It's a prayer for forgiveness of the very people that were torturing him. You know, if you and I were at the hour of our death, we would not be praying, Father, forgive them. We would be praying, Father, forgive me. Because we are a sinful people. But it's not so with the sinless Messiah, the man Christ Jesus. He prayed, Father, forgive them. There's a remarkable prayer whereby the incarnate Christ displays remarkable forgiveness when it was in his power and in his right to pray to his heavenly father and to request 12 legions of angels, that is 12 armies of angels, to execute wrath on the very people that he created that were going to torture him. But yeah, he prays 
for forgiveness is remarkable in the sense that, I don't know about you, but when someone offends me, I need a bit of time. Like, I need an hour or two or a day or two. Like, I'm not thick-skinned by default. Like, I get offended quickly, but by God's grace, generally speaking, I get over it by God's grace alone. Otherwise, I'd never get over it. Um, But the Lord Jesus Christ, in the midst of his very agony, I don't know about you, but when I'm in pain, like just the flu or, um, you know, a heavy headache, um, I find it hard to to pray. I find it hard to read my Bible. At best, I just turn on the audio Bible. Like I'm in pain. I find it hard. I'm so self-absorbed in my pain. But it's not so with the Lord Jesus Christ in the midst of the greatest agony that any human ever experienced emotionally and physically. He's not self-absorbed with himself. He's thinking of others and not only others. He's thinking of these very people that he created who are torturing him. He prays for their forgiveness. Jesus, our perfect example perfectly practiced what he preached. What a preacher. Look with me in Matthew 5.44, the greatest sermon that was ever preached. Matthew 5.44, the Sermon on the Mount. He says, But I say to you, love your enemies. Bless those who curse you. Do good to those who hate you. And pray for those who who spitefully use you and persecute you. He perfectly practiced what he preached when he said, Father, forgive those who are tormenting me. That's the first point, what Jesus prays for. He prays for the forgiveness of those that were torturing him. Second thing I want us to focus on, I think it's very important, is who Jesus prays for. Look with me at the verse, or our main verse again. Keep your finger there. We'll go to other verses, but we'll come back to the main verse at all times. Uh, Luke 23, 34, then Jesus said, Father, forgive them. Who did he pray for? Them. Forgive them for they. Them and they referring to the same group of people or the people from the same group that he's referring to. Father, forgive them for they do not know what they do. Them and they are the same people from the different groups being referred to. That is, the groups being referred to when he says forgive them are the one, Roman soldiers, two, the Jewish leadership that set him up, and the third group, uh, everyone else who jumped on the bandwagon, the crowd that was shouting crucify him, crucify him a week before and showed up at the cross and were also reviling him. Notice with me who the them and they are. Look with me at the next verse in Luke 23, 35. And the people, that is the same mob, the blind following the blind, those Jews that were following their blind Jewish leaders that shouted crucify him, crucify him. And then uh, at the cross, you notice they begin to sneer at him. So and the people stood, uh, stood looking on But even the rulers, the Jewish leadership, with them, with the onlookers, with them, sneered, saying, he saved others. Let him save himself if he is the Christ, the chosen of God. 
And verse 36, notice also the third group of people, the soldiers also, the Roman soldiers also mocked him, coming and offering him sour wine. Now, of course, this prayer does not mean that all these people that were present automatically go to heaven. Cover to cover, the scriptures plainly teach that the unrepentant and the faithless go to hell. Furthermore, notice with me again verse 34, our main verse. Notice how it says, Father, forgive them, for they, them and they, do not know what they are doing. Them and they are specifically the ones within these three groups that are acting in ignorance. That's what he means when he says, for they do not know what they're doing. Yeah, there's a big difference between the ignorant who are at enmity with Christ, but then come to repentance, and the reprobate who commit the unpardonable sin and never come to repentance. One example is the Apostle Paul, who in ignorance was an enemy of Christ and persecuted the church of God, but then came to repentance and faith and received mercy by the grace of God. In 1 Timothy 1.13, Paul says there, Although I was formerly a blasphemer before God saved him by his grace, before he came to repentance and faith, a persecutor, that is a persecutor of the church of God, he was an enemy of Christ, and an insolent man, but I obtained mercy. Ignorance is no excuse. It's still by the grace of God. But he obtained mercy because he did it ignorantly in unbelief. There's a big difference with the ignorant that come to repentance and the reprobate or the Christ-rejecting reprobates. You know, the unrepentant reprobate does not receive intercession, does not receive atonement or mercy. As a matter of fact, the unrepentant are not forgiven. They spend an eternity in hell. Rather than being forgiven, God gives up the reprobate reprobate to judicial blindness and they spend all eternity separated from God. In contrast to the Apostle Paul, who was ignorant and unbelief but came to repentance and faith, is Pilate, the reprobate, who knew Jesus was innocent who even being warned by his wife ignored the fact that Christ was innocent and drowned in his wickedness. Pilate did not receive intercession. He did not receive forgiveness and did not receive atonement. Jesus does not intercede for the reprobate. In John 17, 9, he plainly says, I pray for them referring to his disciples. And then in verse 20 of John chapter 17, he says that he prays for all believers that come after them. He intercedes for us. And that includes you and me, dear child of God. I pray for them, including you and I, child of God. And then he goes on to say in John 17, 9, I do not pray for the world. In other words, he doesn't pray for the Christ-rejecting reprobate. 
but for those whom you have given me, for they are yours. God is both loving and just. And because he's loving, he's forgiving. He's both forgiving and just. The repentant are the ones who receive forgiveness by the grace of God alone. But the unrepentant, reprobate, receive justice. The justice of God. Jesus prayed for his ignorant killers in the very midst of their hatred even in the very midst of them torturing him, and in doing so fulfilled prophecy. As Brother William read for us in Isaiah 53, 12, it says there he was numbered with the transgressors and he bore the sin of many, not all. Not the sins of Pilate, but bear the sins of many and made intercession for the transgressors. Look with me thirdly how Jesus' prayer is answered. I think one thing is for sure, and that's why point two is important. One thing is for sure, the prayers of the incarnate Christ were always answered by his heavenly Father. You know, when you and I pray as the children of God, our prayers are always answered. But they're always answered according to the will of God. And because we are not sinless, he always answers our prayers, but because we're not sinless and we're a sinful people still with the flesh and still struggle with our flesh, when we pray, he always answers with a yes, no, or wait. But when the sinless God-man, where the man Christ Jesus prayed when he was on this earth, his prayers were always answered with a yes, because he always prayed according to the will of the Father. And this is because the eternal Son of God shares one will with the Father and Holy Spirit. In John chapter 11, Jesus arrives at the scene whereby his friend Lazarus had died, had been laid in the tomb for four days. In John chapter 11, 41, after arriving at the scene and there was a big commotion and everyone was mourning, um, he tells them to remove the stone, some um, astonished, but still remove the stone. Then they took away the stone in John eleven forty one from the place where the dead man was lying and Jesus lifted up his eyes and said, Father, this is the man Christ Jesus, once again praying, I thank you that you have heard me. And then verse 42 says, And I know that you always hear me. But because of the people who are standing by, I said this, that they may believe that you sent me. His prayers were always answered. Notice with me how his prayer on the cross, Father, forgive them, was answered with a yes. In Matthew 27, 44, both the thieves reviled him. But because of the intercessory prayers of Jesus and by his grace alone, one of them came to repentance. Some people think, well, how did that happen so quick? Well, the answer to that is the same thing with what I mentioned about my wife. On the way to church, she's saying, I'll never become one of you. 
But God's work of regeneration, when God opens our heart, this is an instant work of God. Just like he opened Lydia's heart, he instantly opened this, this thief's heart. One second he's reviling him, in an instant act of the work of God, he opens his heart and then the guy comes to repentance. 27.44, the guy's reviling him, but in Luke 23, in our main passage, look with me, 39, then one of the criminals who were hanged blasphemed him, saying, if you are the Christ, save yourself and us. But the other answering rebuked him, saying, do you not even fear God, seeing you are under the same condemnation? Isn't that beautiful when God converts us, how we stand up, stand up for Jesus? He gives us this courage that we never had before. And look at me, verse 41, And we indeed justly, for, for we received the due reward, reward of our deeds. That's repentance. He's confessing his sins in his own way. But this man has done nothing wrong. That's faith in Christ. He finally sees that Christ is sinless. He's done nothing wrong. When Pilate, on the other hand, knew that Christ had done nothing wrong, he drowned in his wickedness. Didn't come to repentance. Was a reprobate. But this man who was ignorant like 10 minutes earlier now comes to repentance. Look with me, verse 42 of Luke 23. Then he said to Jesus, Lord, remember me when you come into your kingdom. That's faith. And verse 43, and Jesus said to him, Assuredly, I say to you today, you will be with me in paradise. That's grace. This is a guy that was a thief all his life. And yet Jesus says, tonight you'll be with me in paradise. Notice with me another man whereby Jesus' prayers were answered. In Luke 23, 47, so when the centurion uh, saw what had happened, he glorified God saying, certainly this was a righteous man. The Roman centurion was ignorantly involved in the crucifixion of Christ, but then it appears here that he comes to repentance. But, his, um, but the reprobates that were also involved in the cruci crucifixion drowned in their wickedness. Notice with me another group of people uh, that... Uh, that Josh made reference to in the kids' talk. Another group of people who receive forgiveness of their sins because of the intercession and atonement of Christ. Look with me in Acts chapter 2. Maybe you can turn there, but keep your finger in our main passage. So you've got Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John in the book of Acts. So Jesus died, rose again. Acts chapter 2 is not long after the resurrection. Acts chapter 2, verse 14 Peter, after denying Christ and proved himself to be a coward, is empowered by the Holy Spirit of God and goes from being a coward to a bold preacher of the Word of God. It says there in Acts chapter 2, verse 14, but Peter, standing up with the eleven, raised his voice. That makes me feel normal, even when I'm using my whisper voice. You know, Lebanese have got loud voices. I can't help it. But every time I'm uh, visiting preachers somewhere, I say to myself, just use your whisper voice. All right, so this morning, this is my whisper voice. When I'm preaching at my church, I just get comfortable because any, everyone knows, oh, that's just Rob. Um, but here, I, um, 
uh, try to be courteous and not raise my voice. But this, this verse makes me feel normal. He raised his voice and said to them, Men of Judea and all who dwell in Jerusalem, let this be known to you and heed my words. And notice he, um, in this verse, he addresses the men of Jerusalem and all who dwell in Jerusalem, uh, in, in Jeru- uh, men of Judea and all who dwell in Jerusalem. And then jump to verse 22, he addresses the men of Israel. Hear these words, Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested by God to you by miracles, wonders and signs which God did through him in the midst, in your midst, as you yourself also know. And verse 23, him, that is Christ, being delivered by the determined purpose and foreknowledge of God, it was the sovereignty of God that sent Jesus to the cross. But notice what's also 100% true, you, who's you? The men of Israel, the people of Israel, the Jews, the leader, Jewish leadership and the blind followers. You put him to death. Now verse 36, jump with me to verse 36. Therefore let all the house of Israel know all of them were responsible for his death. And of course, um, Jesus being sent to the cross by Almighty God and him sharing one will with the Father willingly came to die for the sins of his people. So what I'm saying, it's also your sin and my sin that put him to that cross. Therefore, all the house of Israel know assuredly that God has made this Jesus, whom you crucified, both Lord and Christ. Verse 37, now when they, they, who's they? The people of Israel that he holds accountable for crucifying him. These are the same people that said, crucify him, crucify him. A week before his crucifixion, the same group of people, or people from amongst the same group that were sneering on him. When he was being crucified, when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, men and brethren, what shall we do? In verse 38, then Peter said to them, notice with me how the ignorant don't automatically go to heaven. No, he said to them, repent. Repent and let every one of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of your sins and you shall receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Verse 40, and with many other words he testified and exhorted them saying, be saved from this perverse generation. Verse 41, then those who gladly received his word. What word? That Jesus died and rose again and that you need to respond by repenting and believing and being baptized Then those who gladly received his word were baptized. And that day, about 3,000 souls were added to them. That's the answer to Christ's intercessory prayers. And this is because of the atoning work of the Lord Jesus Christ. And they continued, verse 42, steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine and fellowship and the breaking of bread and in prayers. Notice one last group that I want to highlight that were the answer. To Christ's prayers. Remember that these people were part of the group that were gathered, but it was also um, another remarkable uh, group, part of the Jewish leadership. Look with me in Acts chapter 6, verse 7. Just flick over a few pages. Then the word of God spread, Acts 6, 7. Then the word of God spread. And notice, and the number of the disciples, disciples, believers, used synonymously here in this verse, and the number of believers 
disciples slash believers multiplied greatly in Jerusalem. And notice with me, and a great many of the priests were obedient to the faith. That's who Jesus prayed for. They submitted to their Messiah, repented and believed the gospel. Notice with me finally, the fourth point. Jesus' prayer exemplified. Now, the first Christian martyr, Stephen, who, like all of us that experience this new heart that God gives us when he saves us, had a love for his kindred people, had a love for people, and he only desired to, to share the word of God, to share the glorious gospel with them, but they respond with rage and gnash their teeth, and they begin throwing stones at him. And they did not stop until they killed him alive. He was the first Christian martyr. But like his Lord and Savior, in the very midst of his agony, in the very midst of his torture, imagine that, having rocks thrown at your head and they don't stop until you die. Picture the pain and agony. Like in the flesh, your default position would be so self-absorbed in your own pain, but by the grace of God, this guy, like his Lord and Savior, doesn't think of himself, but he thinks about forgiving those who are agonizing him and are killing him. In Acts chapter 7, next page, or next chapter, Acts chapter 7, in verse 60, just before, the moment before he dies, it says there, then he knelt down and cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not charge them with this sin. And when he had said this, he fell asleep. How about that? That was his last words. Forgive these people that are killing me. Beloved brothers and sisters, Stephen is a rebuke to the excuse that says, you just don't know what they did to me. I can't forgive. It's a rebuke that says, yeah, I get it. I mean, Jesus forgave. I'm not Jesus. I can't forgive like Jesus. I mean, all right, he was a man, but he was also God. But Stephen is a rebuke to that because Stephen is proof that by the grace of God alone, you can forgive as Jesus has forgiven you. Not only is Stephen proof that this can, by the grace of God, happen, but all the martyrs that have gone after him. The land of modern-day Turkey has had its fair share of Christian martyrs right from the first century um, uh, through to uh, uh, all the way through to the 6th century. So the Romans persecuted many Christians in the modern-day land of Turkey. 6th century, they experienced the um, uh, Arab invasion. And also um, in the 10th and 11th centuries through the Crusades and the counter-Crusades experienced much, much persecution. Uh, of course, with the Ottoman Empire in the 15th century. And even in modern history with the Armenian Genocide, the genocide of the Syrians and Syriacs, being many... Uh, Christians that have been martyred for the name of Christ, and even um, uh, Christians of the, the Eastern East Orthodox 
uh, religion or faith that have been martyred for naming the name of Christ. But one martyrdom in um, recent times got my attention this past week, especially as I was studying this passage. It was only in recent times, on uh, April 18th in 2007, not too long ago, in Malataya in southeastern Turkey, which was one time um, had a high Armenian population. But after the genocide, of course, that dwindled. A man by the name of Ugar Yuksul, who was only 32 years of age, and uh, his friend, Nakati Aden, uh, also 30, uh, 36 years of age, both were Turkish nationals, and they were Christian converts from Islam. Both these dear faithful brothers were tortured in a very cruel manner. Not only physically, the injuries were so horrendous physically, but not only physically, but they experienced that feeling of betrayal. The people that tortured them set them up and had befriended them for some time and pretending that they wanted to become Christians and then turned on them and tortured them. There was a third man who was part of this three, uh, uh, part of the two. And the third man, his name was Tillman Gesk, who was a German missionary, a Protestant German missionary. These were Protestant Christians. He also, in the same, same attack, was tortured. So three of them were tortured and they became martyrs for the Lord Jesus Christ. But this is what got my attention. And this is the amazing thing, remarkable testimony of God's grace and God's forgiveness. The very next day after the murders, there was a big media scrum that arrived at the house of Tillman Guest, the German missionary. They arrived at his house, the one that was martyred and tortured. They arrived requesting to interview his wife, had three children. This is the day after, next day. Initially, she testified, or her name was um, Susan Guest. So she testifies, and I'll send this video to Joel, and perhaps he can share it with you guys, an incredible uh, testimony um, of Susan Guest. She testifies that when they showed up at the house, there was many people that were given their condolences. And there were a few pastors that had flown from across the country to comfort the family and so forth. Her initial reaction was, no way, I, I can't process this. I, I, I can't speak to them. And one of the pastors encouraged her, um, we've laboured so hard, just please consider this, to spread the gospel. Perhaps this is an open door to share. Um, with the media and to share the gospel. And she testified, as soon as she heard that, uh, the penny dropped and she invited them in. She testifies in her own words that the first thing that came to her as they interviewed her is this. I forgive those. This is the next day. I forgive those murderers that murdered my husband. And the one and only reason for this is because Jesus has forgiven me. And his example on the cross, she quoted the verse, Luke 23, 34, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they are doing. And it is reported that after that testimony that was 
like uh, public media, many, many inquired, many Turks from a Muslim background inquired and requested a Bible. And to be fair, because this may incite a bit of anger towards Turks, she also testifies that um, the majority of Turks found it despicable what these uh, murderers did. And many came and gave their condolences and comforted their family. And many were interested, they were intrigued how she could just forgive them. On top of that, she decided to stay in the country and continue to serve the Lord Jesus Christ together with her children. Testifies that her children saved and going strong for the Lord. Only Almighty God knows how many since then have been converted. Beloved brothers and sisters, as the children of God who have been forgiven, we forgive as an outflow of the forgiveness that we ourselves have received. Many of us won't or may not experience you know, the martyrdom of our spouse or martyrdom itself. And by the way, this is a blessed privilege for a Christian to experience, but it's a blessed privilege that God gives, not for me to go look for. Many of us may not have that privilege, but all of us are going to be hurt and offended. And usually we're offended by those who love us most. How common is it within a family? Some couple being married for 20 years and he says something really nasty or vice versa and I just can't get over it, I can't forgive. Or even within the church community, sadly, so common, I can't believe he spoke to me that way. How dare she speak to me like that? Let's be honest, this is what our flesh is like. Maybe my sort of Lebanese background, you know, being on a shame culture, I struggle with that when someone says something about me and whatever, how dare they say that? That's my default position. But you know what helps me by the grace of God? What helps me be forgiven and deal with my offences? It's ultimately scripture, but this saying from Charles Spurgeon helps me greatly. Every time I hear someone say something nasty about me or hear this and that, because I'm not that thick-skinned, right? But this, by the grace of God, helps me. Charles Spurgeon said this, quote, If any man thinks ill of you, do not be angry with him, for you are worse than he thinks you to be. Unquote. How true is that? Without fail, every time I ponder on this quote, when someone says something nasty, I'm thinking, hang on a minute, I shouldn't be offended. I should take that as a compliment. I'm worse than what he said. More importantly, I'll close with these verses from the Word of God 11, in Luke 11, verse 4, and forgive us our sins, for we also forgive everyone who is indebted to us. And do not lead us into temptation, but deliver us from evil one. Ephesians 4.31 Let all bitterness, wrath, anger, clamor, and evil speaking put away with you, uh, be put away from you with all malice, and be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another. Even as God in Christ forgave you, 
that helps me practically a lot. All I need to do is ponder on the great mercy and the great forgiveness and um, the nasty words that I myself have said, that I myself struggle with also. That helps me to be tender-hearted and merciful and forgiving one another. Colossians 3.12, Therefore, as the elect of God, holy and beloved, put on tender mercies, kindness, humility, meekness, long-suffering, Verse 13 of Colossians 3, bearing with one another and forgiving one another. If anyone has a complaint against you, notice with me, beloved brothers and sisters, even as Christ forgave you, so you also must forgive them. It's not an option. I would be very concerned. Like I get it. One week, two weeks. I get it. Six months. But someone that never forgives, surely the question needs to be asked. Have they received forgiveness? This time I invite you to bow your heads and close your eyes for a word of prayer. just want to give you a few moments of reflection and for you to respond to the word of God this morning with prayer. Perhaps um, there's someone that you need to forgive or perhaps there's someone that you need to apologize to. I'll just give you a few moments between you and our most gracious God, he says, if you confess your sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins, to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Of course, he's forgiven us from our past, present, and future sins. But those who have experienced the forgiveness of their past, present, and future sins, because of this, live a continual life of repentance and a continual life of faith and a continual life of confession. And therefore, as the word of God exhorts us, I'll just give you a few moments to um, confess, acknowledge your sin between you and the Lord. That's the main thing. And then also, after church, um, exercise forgiveness. Heavenly Father, we're so thankful for the Lord Jesus Christ and for his perfect example and perfect life. Uh, most of all, we're thankful for his death on the cross for our sins. Let's pray for any precious soul here this morning that has not yet experienced this forgiveness of sins, has not yet come to faith and repentance, Lord God. We come to you for their salvation because we acknowledge that only you are the one that opens the heart, that brings people to their knees in repentance and faith. We pray for this precious soul that they would come and that they would repent and believe on you, Lord God, that they would see the beauty in repentance, in forgiveness, the beauty of the Son of God, the perfect Son of God that died in the place of sinners, that they would experience forgiveness and his eternal love. And pray for us as your children, Lord God, we confess that even though you've given us a new heart and a desire to love and forgive, we struggle with our flesh. Help us to be tender-hearted and forgiving. 
towards one another, Father God. In our homes, in our church community, um, at our workplace, in our society, help us, Lord God, forgive as you have forgiven us. In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen.